season of Bob's Just Asking is looking at marginalized voices. And there are a few groups of people that you could say were more marginalized than the enslaved people of the Americas. The first episode of the season dealt with enslaved people in the New Jersey area. Today, we're sitting down with John Marks, who wrote a book called Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas, Carolina Low Country, and the Atlantic World. Specifically, John took a look at Charleston, South Carolina, and Cartagena, Colombia. John's a former student of mine, so I always love catching up with him and am incredibly proud of the historian that he has become. Take a listen to our conversation. John Marks, welcome to Bob's Just Asking. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Let's start with uh, the work that you did uh, on your book and before that your thesis. Uh, what made you focus on Charleston and Cartagena? Yeah, so when I was looking around for a dissertation topic, I, I knew I wanted to do something comparative. Um, I was seeing, reading a lot of things about Latin American history, reading a lot about North American and U.S. history, um, and not seeing a lot of analysis that crossed the two. Um, and so I was feeling around for, you know, what what two places might make for a good comparison. Um, and uh, I ended up with Cartagena and Charleston, um, primarily because they represented sort of the two far margins of sort of the greater Caribbean world, um, one to the north, the other to the south. Um, but both were mainland cities. Uh, both were really intimately connected to the wider world of Atlantic commerce, to the international slave trade. Um, and they had uh, these really kind of close connections to other, other places in the Caribbean. Um, then as I started to dig a little bit deeper, I found some other connections between the two cities that I thought would really make for uh, a comparison of race and slavery in particular, um, kind of rich in those two places. Um, and primarily that was that both cities were home to a majority black population. So in Charleston, uh, during most of the period that, that the book covers from sort of the late 18th to the mid 19th century, um, the majority of the population were enslaved African-Americans. Uh, in Cartagena, the majority of the population were free people of African descent. Um, so similar in some ways in uh, talking about and thinking about the history of race, um, but also very different in talking about comparisons between slavery and freedom. So what sort of uh, primary source documentation did you rely on to develop your understanding of the subject matter? And I'm particularly wondering how challenging that might have been for Cartagena uh, without being fluent in Spanish. Uh, well, thankfully, I am fluent in Spanish uh, and was a Spanish major as an undergraduate. Uh, okay, so I uh, didn't, I, I forgot my research. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, uh, I don't speak Spanish the way I speak English. Um, and it, uh, and it was, uh, it was really difficult. Um, it, you know, kind of when I was approaching the book and approaching the the dissertation, um, I was like, why don't people do work like this more often? And then once I got kind of deep into the primary research phase, I kind of realized, oh, it's because it's really, really hard. And it's, <laughs> it's hard to write a book about one place, uh, let alone a book about two places with different languages and different legal cultures and religious cultures. Um, but, but a lot of what I write about is built on kind of 
classic social history records. Um, so things that are really mundane by themselves, but can give you in the aggregate this really rich detail about the lives of people who didn't record very much in their own hand. Um, so things like census records and city directories, tax records, court records, um, some church records like baptismal registers and things like that. Um, census records in particular were really, really useful um, because they give you a sense of, um, of household structures and neighborhood structures. Um, if you're lucky, they give you ages and occupations. Um, oftentimes they'll, um, they'll give you a sense of different complexional differences among people of African descent. So people aren't just listed as black or white, but they're listed as black or you know, mixed race or white or black or mulatto or white. Um, and, and that was really rich, uh, really rich source material for talking about some of the, the distinctions between communities of African descent. Um, but then it, it was really hard to, to find material that I felt like was directly comparable between the two cities. Um, you know, you would find this really rich source base in one place um, from, you know, from a census or from city directories or from, you know, a court case or something like that. Um, and you wouldn't have an analogous piece of documentation in the other city to make a comparison. And so the approach that I kind of took in writing the book was to try to put together as complete a picture as I could of one place using the documentation and try to put together as complete a picture as I could of the other place using what documentation was available there. And then to kind of compare what those two pictures looked like. Um, so where I could, I was comparing, you know, one source base to the same source base in the other place. Um, but more often I was trying to paint a portrait in one place and sort of compare how that looked to the portrait I could put together for the other. That's really interesting because it, in in a in the classroom when students do compare and contrast exercises and they well they'll sometimes pick things that have nothing to do with each other it's like you know you make a t chart and the you know the, the the examples are completely unrelated and i and normally i would say that's unacceptable uh, but obviously you're limited by what what you can do so you have to extrapolate from that and i think uh, quite effectively like i i saw I mean, there were times where, you know, I would be somewhat lost in your description of the one place uh, and and wouldn't necessarily track uh, when I'm reading the second, you know, the, the, the second description. And then, of course, you, you pull together where where appropriate. Um, let's get to I want to talk a little bit like a lot of a lot of the focus um, of your book is about uh, free black population, something that. Um, yeah, is not exactly is not nearly as well documented as enslaved populations. So, I mean, do we do we actually have a clear idea of the size of free black population in first specifically South Carolina or or the the colonies as a whole? Is that in the census records, or what can what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so th thankfully the census records are um, are really good about that and recording that kind of uh, recording that kind of detail, um, and so we do have a pretty good sense of how large or at least what percentage of the population um, the uh, free Black people constituted in South Carolina at any given time. Um, so at the beginning of of the book, you know, in talking about the the 1780s, 1790s, um, up until the turn of the 19th century, you know, there may be around three or four percent of the population of Charles. Charleston. Um, and then as you get to the 1810s and 1820s, um, that population really starts to explode and, and get much larger. And it almost, it more than doubles between, I think, between 18, uh, 1800 and 1820. Um, and 
that's right around when you have uh, white authorities in Charleston and in South Carolina um, kind of frantically uh, trying to control and regulate the, the free black population because it's becoming a much, much more visible part of the city. Um, and, and that's true. Uh, that's true to some extent in, uh, in Cartagena as well. Um, you have a growing free black population over the course of, uh, of the 18th and 19th century, but the timing is a little bit trickier there. Um, but they, you know, in almost every, every Southern city, certainly um, free black people are a, uh, a very small, but um, you know, still important and, uh, and noticeable part of the, the populations in those cities and part of the, um, the life of those cities, uh, especially when you look at, at certain types of occupations and things like that. Um, so I have become very uh, intimately familiar with, with the census and uh, am <laughs> very appreciative uh, to census enumerators that had good handwriting and drew straight columns. All right, so this this next one's going to have a long preface, but <laughs> when when dealing with the black experience in early America, um, I, I I envision, or maybe I'm right, I think I'm right, the typical high school history teacher uh, or high school history class uh, first addressing the notion that Native American people weren't well suited in quotation marks to slavery, while Africans were. I think it would be uh, actually more accurate to talk about vulnerability to diseases carried by Europeans as opposed to suitability, but we also have to talk about how enslaved Africans were not merely strong people with endurance. Um, we have to talk about uh, one of the major focuses, uh, sorry, we, the focuses of the book that isn't addressed here, specifically the, the lives of free Black people. Um, first, can you, can you talk about how West African expertise contributed to the growth of rice cultivation in South Carolina. I thought that was a particularly uh, insightful uh, portion of the book that I, I haven't yet incorporated into my teaching, but it will be next year. Yeah, so that's a, a great question, and I think you know early on in uh, in North American history, right? There's you know there's many efforts in the the early 18th, the mid 18th century to um, to enslave Native peoples that just aren't nearly as successful as successful so for you know for colonizers successful for whites as um, efforts to enslave Africans um, you know because of susceptibility to disease because of this intimate knowledge of the landscape and the geography that indigenous people had that their enslavers didn't um, and when you bring enslaved when they brought enslaved Africans over um, there you know this was a completely foreign place to them and they're often trying to get people from different geographic areas to um, discourage cooperation and things like that um, but in the case of South Carolina I think you have a really interesting um, a, a really interesting historical development in the um, the expertise of certain people from certain parts of West Africa who were enslaved specifically for their knowledge of things like rice cultivation um, so for um, for years uh, in the early uh, you know early after the founding of South Carolina you have white planters white enslavers that are kind of searching around for an appropriate cash crop um, you know these are mostly people coming from um, from Barbados in the early years, and they're trying to plant sugar in South Carolina. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just not working. Um, it's just not the right climate, not the right circumstances uh, for, for sugar cultivation. Um, and eventually they start turning to rice um, and they're growing it um, in a way that just isn't, um, isn't very effective. Um, and they start to realize that um, sort of by happenstance that some of the people that they've enslaved from certain parts of West Africa actually have knowledge of how to cultivate rice in a low country environment 
it um, and that they are, um, you know, they are able to do this and they are, um, you know, they, they know the techniques and they know the, um, the methods and, and the things that need to be done to, to make rice cultivation successful. And they're using that expertise um, to sort of get a leg up um, from the horrors of slavery. Um, and over time, in, white enslavers in South Carolina start prioritizing people um, from parts of West Africa that have that kind of knowledge. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, rice cultivation is really complicated and uh, dangerous and really difficult work. Like the, you know, I don't even have a, a complete understanding of the technology um, that was that was in use at the time, but um, the way that they would have to, um, you know, irrigate fields and flood fields and then um, take the water back and work with the tides and the, you know, sort of the exact timing of things. Um, it was really complicated work. Um, and it wasn't enslavers that, that had that knowledge of how to do it. It was uh, enslaved enslaved West Africans themselves, um, and over time, they're the ones who um, really built up the infrastructure of of rice cultivation in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Countries. I mean, it's just it's such a it, it it's it runs so much against the the narrow message that I think people get that uh, I mean, and and it's true not just of uh, you know not just this example, but. You know, enslaved people all over the country using their expertise to run mills and things that that their enslavers had no idea about and were hopeless were helpless without their without their skill. Uh, it's just something that that we all I think collectively uh, his, history teachers and historians need to make sure that is right there at the forefront. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, you know, for students, it's not just for students and and adults, right? I think the history of slavery is so often locked in to like the eighteen fifties in Mississippi, right? Like it is, uh, you know, it is cotton, uh, you know, slavery is synonymous with the cotton kingdom of the late 19th century, right before the Civil War. But, um, you know, slavery was different in different places at different times. Um, you know, the, the way that the experience of enslaved people um, you know, played out in an environment like the Low Country was different than how it played out in, you know, the Piedmont of Virginia was different than how it played out in the Deep South, you know, almost 100 years later. And so those kinds of, um, you know, it's th those kinds of geographic differences and temporal differences are really important when you think about what the actual experience of slavery was for an individual person. Boy, that must have been quite an awakening uh, for you when, you know, having had such a crummy history teacher for for that uh, for that year <laughs> to, to, to be like, wow, that was a that was a small fraction of the story that I got. <laughs> oh, that's not true at all. I was equipped with very well with a, a set of skills that allowed me to uh, understand what I was reading and uh, and ask good questions. Oh. Skills and skills and content are not necessarily the same thing, but hey, wait, that's uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm working on it. We're all working on it. Um, let's jump to to manumission. Um, I found the descriptions of celebration ceremonies in Cartagena fascinating. Um, could you actually just provide the listener a, a little bit of a description uh, before we segue to that to the process that in South Carolina that evolved over time? Yeah, so the one of the anecdotes and kind of vignettes that I open really opened the first chapter with um, is the story of a manumission ceremony um, in sort of the uh, in early 19th century Cartagena, where a a small group of enslaved people are being freed on Christmas Day in in Cartagena, um, which I should say for listeners who aren't familiar, it's on the Caribbean coast of South America, um, on the Caribbean coast of Colombia, um, and so it's uh, and it's one of the most important cities um, in in Caribbean Colombia. Um, 
in this context and and still today. Um, and so it's on Christmas Day. Um, there's a, a group of five or six people that are being emancipated um, through state funds, right? The, um, the the country is, has purchased their freedom, has paid their enslavers for the freedom for these people. And there's sort of a, um, a, a ceremony in the city to celebrate that these people are, are coming into uh, are coming into their freedom. And so there's sort of a parade through the city and into the town square. Um, people are putting um, liberty caps on these uh, these individuals who are who are coming into their freedom. Um, and and the the way that I know about this story is because it was uh, viewed by a New Yorker um, who was kind of um, mocking of how uh, how excited and the, you know the fact that some of these people that were being uh, being emancipated were crying about coming into their freedom. And so it just um, you know that there could be this kind of public celebration of uh, the emancipation of uh, of African descended people at the same time that the United States is kind of doubling down on the system of slavery. Uh, I thought made for a really good um, a really good kind of opening piece to talk about how these two cities that are so similar in so many ways um, could have such different experiences with the history of emancipation. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also, um, you know, these sorts of ceremonies were also a little bit of, um, of kind of a red herring as a, as a historian because um, they are alighting these deeper racial inequalities and the persistence of uh, white attempts to control a majority black population mm -hmm. and uh, determine the, the, the ways that they could participate in politics and the ways that they could participate in public life. And so um, it was, uh, I thought it worked really well as a story and was just a kind of a fascinating, as someone who came to Latin American history, first studying U.S. history, um, was kind of this fascinating story that this was something that was even within the realm of possibility in the 19th century. Sure. The, and the, 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 uh, the self-celebration there is a little bit ironic considering that well, you still are enslaving plenty of people. The, uh, while you're celebrating the end of it for some people, you, uh, the society was still, was still maintaining it. Um, now there, there was plenty of there was a, a fair amount of emancipating going on in South Carolina, but beginning around 1800, uh, the government of I don't know if it was Charleston specifically or the state or both uh, started making that process increasingly difficult. Can you talk a little bit about the motivation behind that evolving process? Yeah, so it's really interesting um, to see sort of how this came together in South Carolina. So after um, you know. Before the revolution, there are periodically individual enslavers who free a person that they had they had enslaved um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then after the revolution, you have this kind of peak of people filing, especially in their wills, um, saying that I'm going to um, emancipate this person that I've enslaved, um, either when I die or when I and my spouse die, sometimes immediately. Um, you really have this, um, this increase in these individual manumissions as people are, um, you know, white Southerners are, are moved by, by the spirit of the revolution and um, the things that that came to mean for folks. Um, and so in the years after 1776 and the 1780s and 90s, you have this increase in the free black population all across the South. Um, and in South Carolina in particular, um, a lot of these people end up moving to place and migrating to places like Charleston, where there is much more opportunity for free black people um, because of the sort of 
economic milieu of of an urban urban city in the south um, that there are just far more economic opportunities to work trades to earn money um, to live independently um, than there are in rural areas that are you know dominated by plantation spaces um, but as that black pop free black population grows the white authorities in charleston and in uh, you know in the state of south carolina start to see it as a threat as a threat to the stability of the slave system and so they start to make it more difficult um, and it, it was really interesting to see the ways that enslaved people um, or uh, well-meaning white Southerners who wanted to emancipate people that they had enslaved um, worked around those restrictions. Um, so at first in 1800, the state says, okay, you can't have private manumissions anymore unless you get them approved by this court body. Um, and so people start jumping through those hoops and getting them approved by the court, um, court records that no longer exist, unfortunately. Um, and then um, and then too many people are doing that. And the state says, you know, okay, well, you, you can't, you just can't privately manumit people anymore. Anymore. And so uh, white Southerners and enslaved people start organizing these um, trusts, basically, where um, they agree to sell an enslaved person in trust to another person. And uh, part of that trust is that um, they can't be sold anywhere else um, and they have to be allowed to you know, live independently. Um, and they're you know, effectively living as free people um, through this sort of legal get around. And then by the 1820s, I say, hey, you can't do this anymore. You can't do that anymore either. Um, and you know, by the time you get to the 1830s or 1840s, um, the state has eliminated almost all opportunities for legal emancipation of enslaved people. Um, they say that you had to leave the state if you were emancipated. Um, new free black people weren't allowed to come into the state. You couldn't privately emancipate people. You couldn't sort of um, get around it through these sales and trust. Um, and so they just made it increasingly difficult for that to be a um, for there to be a legal mechanism to free to free enslaved people, um, which didn't mean that people didn't live as free people, but it meant their status um, became a lot more tenuous because they didn't necessarily have the, the legal documentation that they needed to, to prove their free status. It, it really is uh, another one of those things that I think most people are not all that aware of, and I had limited knowledge myself of the, the idea that this thing that's described as property couldn't be... <laughs> couldn't be freed couldn't be couldn't be i mean that 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 was that there would be restrictions on what you could do with your property even though the whole principle behind it is you're allowed to do whatever you want with your property to some to a certain degree uh now in in enslavers themselves i mean sorry enslaved people uh sometimes of course we know about self-liberation and um we're going to get to rebellions in a, in a second um an, yet another area that uh, I didn't spend enough time on years ago was the ability of some enslaved people to actually purchase their own freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, there there were options. There were, there were not options. They're <laughs> wrong word entirely. There were other possible possibilities for uh, for emancipation, but uh, certainly the one one topic that deserves a lot of attention are are rebellions. Um, now, the Secret Keeper conspiracy of 1793 was new to me. Uh, as I read it in your book. Can you give uh, a quick overview of what was alleged to be going on, whether you believe something was really afoot, and why it may not really matter whether the conspiracy really existed? For that last part, I know I'm throwing a bunch of things at you. For that last part, I'm thinking in terms of how fear and paranoia of a Black rebellion modeled after the Haitian Revolution led them to a crackdown. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think we can't uh, emphasize enough how how much the Haitian Revolution changed 
the game for white enslavers in the U.S. South. Um, you know, the the fear of slave rebellion had had been real for a long time for them, but the most profitable slave colony in the Atlantic world in Saint-Domingue um, being taken over by enslaved people and having them not only overthrow, not only abolish slavery, but overthrow colonial rule, I think, um, you know, really uh, struck fear into the the minds of, of many, many enslavers. And so um, in the years after the Haitian Revolution began, Haitian Revolution begins around 1791. Um, in the years after that, white authorities all around the South are, um, are, are really kind of on edge trying to make sure that they're they're not going to be the next Haiti. Um, and so in 1793, you have this conspiracy um, that historians have come to call the, the, the secret keeper conspiracy. And essentially what white whites in Charleston and elsewhere alleged was that there was a conspiracy among enslaved people in Charleston and Norfolk, Virginia and Richmond, Virginia, um, who were corresponding with one another um, because all of these are port cities, right? And, um, you know, many of the the people who are working on these commercial uh, commercial ships uh, in the, the 18th century are people of African descent, both enslaved and free. They're people that are going to the Caribbean. And so they, uh, they feared and they thought they had discovered a kind of trove of letters uh, that had gone back and forth between uh, between enslaved people in those three cities and that they were organizing to overthrow white rule in each of those cities um, to kind of uh, foment a rebellion in each of those places on the same night um, and use that as a way to um, overthrow slavery in the South. Um, and, and what I find, and, and so, you know, our knowledge of it, right, is based on what the governor of Virginia and the governor of South Carolina and some other white officials are, are saying about it and writing to each other about it. Um, they certainly expressed to each other that they thought that this was a real thing, right? Um, but this is one of the most difficult questions um, and most interesting questions, I think, as a historian um, to, to try to answer about the history of slavery um, is the, you know, the existence or non-existence of these, these plots to overthrow slavery um, that um, we only can read about through, um, you know, through a very one-sided document stream, right? We only see what, what white authorities are saying about it. We only see the prosecution from one side. Um, there's a lot of literature about this with the Denmark Vesey conspiracy some 30 years later in the 1820s. Um, but the questions are mostly similar of, you know, did, was this really something that happened or was this something that was just cooked up um, out of uh, out of the minds of, um, you know, paranoid white Southerners who were, you know, trying to keep keep hold on power um, when they're in the minority in the population. Um, and I think what, you know, I, I don't think, and it seems uh, unlikely that they are inventing these things out of whole cloth, right? Um, I don't think that they are just inventing a conspiracy to try to, you know, try to crack down on the enslaved population. Um, they had plenty of ways to do that anyway. Um, you know, they didn't need to invent a conspiracy in order to, um, you know, impose control on, on the black population and, um, and, but I think what's important and what these these kinds of stories reveal is that, um, you know, there's at least an element of truth there, right? Um, that even if this conspiracy wasn't as um, well-developed as maybe the governor of, of South Carolina 
alleged that it was. Um, it's almost certain to me that uh, free black people and enslaved people throughout the South were talking about the Haitian Revolution. We're thinking about the Haitian Revolution. Um, you know, when they, you know, there is you know, through word of mouth, through these incredible kind of oral communication networks, there is knowledge that's being passed from the decks of ships way, way out into the countryside um, really, really fast. That, in, you know, there's instances where enslaved people know what happened in Haiti before white people read about it in the newspaper. Um, you know, there are newspaper accounts of the Haitian Revolution that I get into in the book that are, um, you know, in these really vivid ways describing what's happening there. Um, and so I think certainly, you know, it's, or it is a certainty that African descended people in South Carolina knew about the Haitian revolution. They knew the rhetoric that was surrounding it. Um, they knew that white people were awful spooked about, uh, about what that might mean for other places where slavery existed in the Atlantic world. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's virtually certain that they started to think about their own experiences and, uh, in, in diff and their own identities in different ways because of that. Um, you know, and at times I think this, you know, it resulted in, um, you know, maybe talk about uh, about revolution and talk about uh, rebellion. Um, and there, at certain times, that you know, um, hit differently than at other times. And at certain times, you know, white authorities were were more concerned about it uh, than at other times. Um, especially in a, a year like 1793, when there are many, many people from white people fleeing San Domingue to Charleston and sharing these stories about, um, you know, whites being massacred and uh, enslaved people rising up, that there, the kind of anxiety about it was at a peak in 1793. Um, but all throughout the 1790s and the kind of first decade of the, of the 19th century, I think this was something that was on the minds of both white people and enslaved and free black people in South Carolina. Let's, let's go uh, into the uh, comparative. So we just talked about, or you just talked about the a situation in Charleston post Haitian Revolution. In Cartagena, most of the population, most of the black population by that time was free, but slavery still existed. And blacks, uh, free blacks were surely of lower economic status. Uh, did the news of the revolution lead to any uprisings in Cartagena or, or a conversely preemptive action by the whites in authority? Yeah, so it's uh, it was really interesting, and this was kind of my favorite chapter of the book to write, I think. Um, but really interesting to see how it played out so similarly in Cartagena as it did in South Carolina. Um, so, in as you mentioned, you know the the majority of the population in Cartagena is free, um, but there's you know rampant racial inequality. Uh, African descended people aren't given the same kind of free African descended people aren't given the same kind of representation and voice in um, you know in in local matters or um, in in conversations with the crown. Um, in you know prior to uh, prior to span. Uh, the independence of most of the Spanish American countries. Um, and so you have in, I think in 1793 also, um, there's a house in um, one of the uh, kind of lower economic neighborhoods um, that was um, you know really densely populated with people of African descent. Um, there's a house that flies um, the French flag uh, in 1793. And there's this um, lots of conversation among local authorities and to the Viceroy uh, of New Grenada, um, which is which Colombia was a part of at the time, um, really worried about what this meant um, and worried about that there was going to be um, kind of an uprising among people of African descent in Cartagena. Um, there were uh, there were conversations um, about um, you know, and th there was a lot more back and forth between um, you know between the Spanish Caribbean and um, and 
the and the mainland in Cartagena, and so you had people, you know, this kind of direct contact um, with people from um, from Santo Domingo, with people from Cuba, uh, who had this really direct knowledge of what was happening in in San Domingue, and so you have um, fewer fewer instances of outright, um, you know, outright. Uh, suspicion of rebellions um but the the image of haiti as kind of a radical possibility for people of african descent was one that lasted a really long time for people in in, in cartagena um it's one that uh, people tried to use to kind of rile up support um for you know for reforms that people uh, you know people of african descent used to try to pressure um white the white government of of cartagena to um you know to support them better and to um, you know, to kind of look out for for their interests more than they were, um, and it's something that white authorities in Cartagena were really concerned of. Um, you know, even though slavery was a much much smaller part of the enslaved people were a smaller part of the population, and slavery just wasn't as important economically to Cartagena. Um, white authorities in Cartagena and in New Granada were still worried about their ability to maintain control over a majority black population, um, and in that Haiti was an, an equally terrifying prospect. Uh, for uh, for white authorities there as it was in Charleston. Let's uh, talk about how differences in culture, language, country of origin, and any other factors could be stumbling blocks to common affinity or identity among Black and biracial people. And you can address that for either location or both at the same time, however you want to go. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it, uh, like I was saying earlier, it, you know, it changes over time, I think, um, you know, in years where there are, um, so in talking about the enslaved population, right, uh, there are in the years where there are really heavy importations of enslaved people from West Africa, um, you know, these are combining groups that have different ethnic identities, are from different language groups, um, have different uh, ideas about religion and cosmology and and all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, they didn't see themselves as being being Africans, right? Um, they, you know, they identified more with um, with their ethnic identity or regional identity and things like that. And so those those could all be stumbling blocks to a kind of common, um, you know, a, a common identity um, or a or common action, um, you know, to uh, to try to undermine the slave system. Um, but as time goes on, and more of the as more of the African descended population are born in the Americas, are born in Colombia, are born in the United States, um, some of those differences start to become those, you know, regional differences or language differences start to become less important. Um, but there are still other differences that, um, you know, that really kind of make um, a, a common racial identification more difficult, right? Um, so one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is, are these complexional differences among people of African descent? Um, and in both cities, you see people with, uh, people of African descent with lighter complexions um, see themselves as different from their counterparts with darker complexions. And um, so people with some white ancestry, um, especially people who were born free, as opposed to those who were born enslaved and gained their freedom, or were kind of in that first generation of freedom, um, the, those people have, uh, you know, had 
different economic opportunities open to them uh, than their their um, counterparts with darker complexions or with um, you know that were more fully of African ancestry. Um, and in Charleston, in particular, in some of these voluntary societies um, and these these organizations that people of African descent found, uh, some of them are sp- explicitly only open to people of mixed racial ancestry. Um, and they're in some of their records, they're denigrating people uh, that are wholly of African uh, African ancestry. Um, and so there are moments like the the time around the Haitian Revolution, where I think you see people of African descent start to think of their identities in these broader ways. Um, but as white authorities kind of tamp down on expressions of Black freedom, um, as you know, life and economic opportunity become uh, more difficult, and as um, as you know, as opportunities become more constrained for free Black people, especially in the U.S. context, uh, I think these differences start to become more more important as uh, as free Black people try to kind of desperately hold on to to what's theirs and try to support their families, and um, you know, and aren't necessarily um, thinking more broadly about um, about you know, the ways that they um, share in common this, uh, you know, this experience of racial oppression. In your last chapter, I believe it was, you wrote, networks of baptismal sponsorship built and strengthened mutually beneficial uh, ties of fictive kinship that connected church members of African descent across lines of class and legal status. Would you say that this was a conscious effort on the part of the participants or sort of a benevolent conspiracy where it just ultimately served that purpose? Uh, I really think that it's, it's it was a conscious decision. Um, so to kind of provide some context here, what um, what I write about in in this chapter on baptisms is that uh, there you have uh, in the selection of godparents, you have these very intentional decisions on the parts of the um, the parents of the of the child that's being baptized and of the people who are agreeing to become godparents um, that are about trying to establish these social networks, right? Um, so outside of the kind of religious meaning and obligations of what being a godparent is, um, you have these very kind of social and community focused decisions. Um, so people of lower status um, who um, you know are less wealthy, less well established, um, maybe in their first generation in freedom, they might ask someone, a free black person of a higher status, to serve as the godparent for their child, and then they would establish this link to that person. Um, other times, you have people who are trying to establish uh, more durable and more ties among a kind of certain in group. So people that are of a similar status, um, they're trying to establish you know more connections uh, within within this group. So people within one voluntary society might ask three other people in that voluntary society to serve as a godparent to their child. Um, And I think these are really intentional decisions. Um, You know, I think certainly you can understand the motivation for someone who, um, you know, isn't as well off um, or isn't as secure in their freedom as someone who, um, you know, as a free black person who is wealthier of wanting to have uh, have a reason to, uh, you know, to be able to call on that person or to have a, you know, build a stronger relationship with some of these higher status individuals. Um, but I think for the godparents too, it's an it's a it's a way of outwardly showing both to their black neighbors and to their white neighbors that I'm someone that is well respected in the community. Um, I'm someone that people people think of as as reliable and respectable. Um, someone who um, you know is is part of this church community, which is um, you know 
things like that are important now and they were even more important in the 19th century. Um, and I think, um, and so I do think they were, the, that these were intentional decisions um, because I don't think you would have seen both sides agreeing to it in the ways that they did um, mm. if everyone wasn't kind of conscious of, uh, of, of what the trade-offs were and, 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 and what they were trying to do. Okay, let me hit you with another quote of your writing. By publicly demonstrating their skills, industry, and public worth, free people of color gained distinct economic advantages, boosted their social profiles, staked claims to respectability, and more fully integrated themselves into the social worlds of their local communities. So we're talking, uh, of course, about, about free Black people here. What kind of work were they doing? And um, to what extent were they distinct from free Blacks who did so-called unskilled labor? Yeah, so I'm I'm working on trying to write shorter sentences, um, but uh, <laughs> I di I didn't exactly succeed in my own questions. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, and the so that I wrote a, ch a whole chapter on sort of work and labor and how those patterns compared between the two cities, um, and you have uh, free people of color who are working in a lot of um, what we would think of as kind of skilled. Uh, service-oriented kinds of roles. Um, so you have a lot of free Black people that are working as tailors and carpenters, um, as masons and barbers um, among women. You have a lot of um, kind of seamstresses and cooks and confectioners, um, jobs that require um, a, a high degree of skill, um, but also jobs that are very kind of client-focused, right? Um, and so mm. that nature of the work offered some real advantages to free black people. Um, for one thing, um, so take barbering for existence, uh, for example, which is the kind of job that was done almost exclusively by free black people in, in the, in the urban South. Um, it had, there's, you know, a subservient nature to barbering, right? Um, it, it's a kind of intimate occupation. Um, you are serving the client, um, and that made it a job that white Southerners didn't want to do because they didn't want to be put in that position because that was a position that they thought was something that should be occupied by people of African descent. Um, and then you have this kind of mutually reinforcing cycle where um, it's this subservient kind of role, this very client-focused kind of role. And so it's mainly people of African descent who are doing it. And then that uh, sort of reinforces itself because people really start to see, well, only, you know, only black people are barbers. And so, you know, white people just wouldn't get in to that trade. Um, and this confers a lot of benefits for the free people of color who are in those roles because they get to develop these relationships, um, sometimes with very prominent and wealthy white people in the neighborhood. Um, and so they're operating in an environment where, um, where white people are saying regularly that they don't trust free black people. They don't want to live around free black people. Free black people should have to leave the state. Um, you know, the, the appropriate position for, for black people is in slavery. Um, and yet they're also saying, and sometimes writing in petitions to the governor, I don't mean my barber. Um, he is great. Uh, he is an honest person. He's a religious person. He's a sober person. He's hardworking. He's a, you know, a credit to the community. Um, he's really doing important work. And, um, and I don't mean him. Um, and, and this kind of dynamic plays out over and over again in places like Charleston and other Southern cities where, um, the, where the free black population, because of the sort of client focused nature of their work, um, building houses for people, painting houses for people, um, you know, 
tailoring people's clothes, um, this work that requires a, an incredible amount of skill and uh, an incredible kind of personal relationship with your clients um, that free black people are able to um, build a reputation for themselves with some uh, some pretty important uh, white of their white neighbors, um, people who they could really call on in times of need, um, and it's also offering them an opportunity to make money um, because they're uh, you know these are jobs that are uh, that free black people are doing almost exclusively. Um, and I found it really interesting that these same types of jobs, tailoring, barbering, um, carpentry are the kinds of jobs that uh, were most prominent in Cartagena as well. Um, so through, throughout the sort of urban Atlantic world, there are certain economic exigencies that uh, just demand certain kinds of work um, and in an environment where um, you know, where hard labor is expected to be done by people of African descent all throughout the Americas, um, you end up with free people of color, um, especially free people of mixed racial racial ancestry who are doing these uh, these really skilled these skilled roles all throughout the urban Americas. Did class distinctions emerge among free blacks based on perhaps based on uh, jobs that they were doing? Yeah, so you you do see these kinds of distinctions between you know people who are in jobs like carpentry and um, and tailoring and shoemaking that um, that had this high degree of skill and people who were you know effectively like day laborers right um, who um, were doing more of the the unskilled work of, in urban spaces um, that you know didn't require that same level of kind of client focus it didn't require the um, the kind of startup capital uh, so to speak that being a tailor did where you need a certain set of equipment and tools and things like that. Um, and then you have these overlapping, um, th these kind of uh, overlapping distinctions of complexion and racial ancestry with class where uh, people who are in the more prominent of those kinds of roles, um, things, something like a silversmith or a shoemaker or a tailor tended to be of mixed racial ancestry um, and people who were Things like bricklayers or cooks um, tended uh, to have have darker complexion. Tended to be were more likely to be of um, of entirely African ancestry, um, and that it, it gets to a weird and kind of difficult to to suss out a question about um, it's kind of a chicken or an egg question where you know you're relying on a census taker who's saying this person is a mulatto or this person is black yeah. um, and if they go to someone who is you know living independently in a house with you know and effectively like a single family home with their family and they're dressed well because they're a tailor um, is that census taker might be more likely to say this person looks kind of like you know, lighter skin to me and they must be a mulatto. Whereas if they're living in, you know, in something like a boarding house environment, um, you know, that same census taker, uh, a person could have the exact same amount of money or could have the exact same, um, you know, uh, the exact same genealogy as the person who is living in a, you know, living in his own house. And they might say, yeah, that person is a little bit, you know, is, you know, that person's black. They're not a mulatto. Um, you know, so this wasn't a, um, you know, you don't know the extent to which they were trusting the people that they were asking or if they were asking them at all when they were taking the census. And so um, it kind of uh, calls into question what's coming first, the economic position or the racial designation. Now, there are a lot of people that you, of course, talk about in, in the book for various things that you found, but you did a, a bit of a case study uh, between uh, or featuring J Jehu Jones of Charleston and Pedro Mora uh, Romero sorry, of Cartagena. Um, 
So can you give sort of just a Cliff's Notes version of what you found in that comparison uh, and contrast between them? And, and also talk a little bit about like how you, how you, you know, again, what kind of uh, sources did you use to tease out your findings? Yeah, I, I really wanted to be able to uh, to make sure that I told a, a story about people in in writing this book. Um, so much of what I have in my my research and my evidence is, you know, transcriptions of census records, and um, uh, there's sometimes it's a, a heavier lift than others to try to make census records compelling for people. And so um, the these were um, two of the people that I had um, a little bit more information on um, that had appeared across a couple of different types of records, not just in one or two censuses. Um, and so I uh, I used their stories to kind of talk about the this shared experience of um, free people of African descent in the urban. Americas. Um, so Jehu Jones was um, was born in slavery, uh, was emancipated uh, in the 1790s, um, initially started working as a tailor, earned some money for himself, um, eventually gained entry into this kind of elite uh, local society of, uh, of free black people. Um, he eventually bought a hotel uh, that came to be like one of the most well-regarded hotels in the city, ran a catering service with it, um, and really afforded himself well as, uh, as a free black person in Charleston, um, well enough and had enough connections in town that he wrote to or petitioned the government uh, of South Carolina several times asking for exceptions to some of the restrictions on the exercise of black freedom, like the ability of his family to cross state lines and things like that. Um, meanwhile, in Cartagena, uh, Pedro Romero was born in slavery. He was emancipated sometime in the 1790s. Uh, he worked as a blacksmith, not as a tailor, um, but he uh, eventually did uh, did pretty well for himself, earned money, had military contracts with the city, um, and so was, uh, was able to earn money for himself that way. He was able to purchase the freedom of some of his children who had been born in slavery. Um, eventually, he um, got called on by... Um, by the uh, sort of Patriot Army of uh, of New Granada during their independence movement to uh, lead a, a unit of free Black people from Cartagena. Um, he was able to get an exemption uh, from the Crown prior to the independence movement for one of his children to attend university, um, despite being, uh, being of African descent and go to Bogota. Um, and so for both of these people, you see the ways that they were able to um, you know, earn money to find their way out of slavery, right? Both of them earn, you know, learned their trades in slavery, use some of that money to buy their way out of slavery. Um, they use their trade to build connections in the city uh, that they could use to support their family in different ways, um, to, you know, petition the government to get exemptions, um, to kind of build up their own status and, um, and to, to gain security in, in their freedom. Um, and then they both use their affiliation with, with a an organized body of some kind, the you know a kind of private voluntary association in Charleston, and the military, uh, the the free black militia in Cartagena, um, to sort of further advance their reputation and 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 gain distinction um, that that they could draw economic and, and social advantage of. Um, and so you know each of their stories would have played out a little bit differently in either place, um, but it almost seems like you could have put one put Jehu Jones into Cartagena and taken mm. Pedro Romero and brought him to Charleston and they would have recognized the kind of general milieu uh, pretty well. And they would have, uh, I think, recognized what it, what it would take to find economic security and, and social distinction in those places, um, you know, without, without too much translation. Let's, you, you briefly mentioned, you know, outside help. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about mutual aid and benevolent societies. Um, I've heard mention of them from time to time, but until I read your chapter, I've never actually seen any details about how impactful they could be in, in, in many different ways. Um, this will be the last uh, question for I'm going to ask you to kind of summarize something, but uh, could you tell a little bit about Richard Holloway? Yeah, so Richard Holloway is uh, was a, f- a free black man in Charleston. He is a carpenter, um, and he was uh, one of the founding members uh, of the Brown Fellowship Society. Um, so the Brown Fellowship Society is a, a basically a mutual aid society in Charleston, um, exclusively with an exclusive membership of mixed race free black people. Um, and so these kinds of mutual aid societies were prevalent across the South. Um, both among white people and among African-Americans. Um, and at their most basic level, right, they provided mutual aid for, um, for a, a small community of members of about 50 people. Um, so if you got sick and you couldn't work, um, the, you know, the group would provide your family money. If you died, uh, the, the group would provide money to your family um, to cover the cost of burial and a funeral. Um, they maintained a, a burial plot, a cemetery for themselves because black people weren't allowed to be buried in white cemeteries. Um, and so they offered this kind of, um, they offered this kind of very direct aid to their members. Um, but they also had this kind of parallel and really important social function um, that this was a measure of distinction for free black people in Charleston. Um, You know, this was a way of demonstrating to the wider community that, you know, we aren't just, um, you know, laborers that are struggling to get by. We are interested in, um, you know, in higher pursuits. Um, so this group, you know, would come and they were very, con- come together periodically. They were very concerned about decorum and respectability. Um, you know, there wasn't smoking allowed during meetings. Uh, there wasn't swearing allowed during their meetings. Um, and so they were very concerned with being the type of people who had a, a kind of social gathering like this and who were concerned about a, you know, about the wider community um, and what that said about themselves and what that said about Black people in Charleston. Um, and you have several other uh, of these mutual aid societies that pop up over the course of the, the early 19th century and first half of the 19th century in Charleston, um, all kind of modeled on this Brown Fellowship Society. Um, and so you have um, this uh, Society for Free Dark Men, um, which was um, essentially um, kind of, uh, you know, trying to stick it to the Brown Fellowship Society in some ways of saying that, you know, these mixed people of mixed racial ancestry or light complexion, like you don't have a monopoly on respectability. People of of dark complexion um, can maintain these kinds of groups in just the same way. Um, But they became these really important, important markers of social distinction um, for free black people in Charleston um, because they, they kind of demonstrated this, uh, this outward concern for the wider community, not just for themselves. Thank you for that. Um, now, this was uh, the type of writing that you you were doing here, obviously, in your uh, your dissertation is, uh, and then ultimately the book is very much a academically oriented type of writing. And you mentioned in a previous conversation that we had that you're you're thinking about popular doing writing for a you know more popular audience. Um, and I know you've restarted or you've, you've restarted a blog. Can you tell us first about what your blog is and how sure. people can find it? 
Yeah, so I, I just recently uh, relaunched a Substack newsletter, uh, which you can find uh, called History in Public, and you can find it at johngmarks.substack.com. Um, so every week, uh, at least for right now, every week I'm writing uh, once a week about um, some kind of topic on uh, history and American culture. Um, so writing about what Americans think about history, writing about how they're interacting with museums and historical societies, um, writing about historical markers or history in the media or history on social media and any other range of topics that sort of talk about how Americans are connecting with history and history's place in American culture. And a big part of your recent work has been, or the last few years, has been uh, helping to prepare for the 250th anniversary. What's the word? I, I cannot remember it or say it. The semi-quincentennial. So it's ha <laughs> it's half of 500, uh, okay. semi-quincentennial. Okay. Um, you can all add it to your, your spell check now. Um, I, I did it years ago, um, but it won't it won't recognize it otherwise. Um, but yeah, so in, in my, my day job, I am the director of the Public History Research Lab at the American Association for State and Local History. Um, and, and a big part of, of what I do is researching the state of kind of public history and museum practice um, and developing advocacy tools for the field um, and helping the field prepare to um, take advantage of this upcoming anniversary in 2026, uh, when the U.S. Will, will commemorate the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We'll also host the World Cup that summer. Oh, I did not know that. I will tell you that uh, some of my fondest memories are of the bicentennial. Um, you know, my childhood memories, I was seven years old. And, uh, you know, as I remember various trips that I went with my parent with my parents and, and brothers and sisters and uh, all the schlocky memorabilia that we got that I'm sure we'll be churning out <laughs> for, for 2026. Uh, hope, hopefully we can uh, we can reignite some passion for the history of this country and 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 the the better history the uh, in terms of like more responsible and uh, reflective of the actual the actual events of history and and varying interpretations yeah i i've i've continue to think that it's this really rare opportunity to reintroduce history to the American public um, and reintroduce it to them in a way that is honest and thorough and does justice to the diversity of historical actors and of Americans in the present um, to try to build this more widely shared understanding of American history that is, um, you know, that that is a um, that's that respects our advances in scholarship and changes in interpretation and how our knowledge of the past has changed since the bicentennial. Um, and I think there, there aren't many opportunities to, to do that on a broad scale um, and, and with appropriate funding. Um, but these major anniversaries are one of them. Um, and the bicentennial had a huge impact on so many people. Um, so many people that are educators now that are in the history museum field now, um, you know, it really fundamentally changed how historic preservation operates. And um, it really, um, I I think is a, is a huge opportunity. And so um, I'm doing work to try to make sure that museums and historical societies and historic sites um, are, are prepared for that. Um, and then I'm also doing doing some writing that I hope will, um, will uh, 
take advantage of that of that moment and and will help Americans think about the the revolution and and its legacy in different ways. Um, so you mentioned before writing about um, you know trying to write for a broader public. Um, you know this book, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, was you know it grew out of my dissertation. Um, I published it while I was working, um, you know, not in an academic job, um, and very much published it for my professional colleagues. Um, but I'm working on a book now um, that is that I'm trying to write for um, a much wider audience to um, to really help people understand this history of, of free blacks in a different way. Um, you know, I think the history of black freedom is often assumed to be a history that starts at the end of the Civil War um, or in the Civil Rights Movement. No, no, it happens uh, yeah. in 1863, yeah. everybody thinks. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, wanting to, to make clear, you know, sort of the ways that Black freedom evolved over the course of the 19th century, along with um, you know, conceptions of what the nation is and, and what the United States is supposed to be. Um, and so I'm doing that by um, writing a book about the 123 people that George Washington emancipated in his last will and testament. Um, so uh, most people now know that uh, George Washington was an enslaver, um, but I think fewer people know that he um, wrote in his will that um, all the people he enslaved um, would be would be free after he died and Martha Washington died, which was um, you know a pretty common convention in wills around uh, the time of the Revolution, the um, the turn of the nineteenth century. Um, but that story is almost always treated as the end of a story about George Washington, um, mm-hmm. and no one has ever written. Um, or at least not written much about what actually happens to all of those people um, and how they uh, how their lives and freedom played out over the course of the next several decades. And so um, that's what my book, uh, my next book is going to be. I'm going to be uh, in residence at the Library of Congress next year, um, researching that and hopefully writing writing a big chunk of it. Um, so really excited to start writing for a different audience and, um, and take on the, the challenge and um, huge responsibility of trying to tell that story. That sounds fantastic. John, I, I always love talking to you. Uh, it's good to see you as well. And uh, we'll keep in touch. And I guess I'll see you in DC next year. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.